We're going to need our Bibles. We're going to need our Bibles. Here at the Heaven Campus Church, we love our Bibles. The Word is central to what we do here on Saturday. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand nice and high. We will bring a Bible to you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible, that's okay. I'll be preaching from the same Bible. And I'll call out page numbers and I'll lead and guide you every step of the way. So we're going to need our Bibles. We're going to dive into them. Just while the Bibles are being handed out, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. That's page number 842. 842 in the Bibles that were handed out. Luke chapter 18. When you get to page 842, you'll see a big 18. And it's got a title there, The Parable of the Persistent Widow. You see a whole lot of little numbers. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 8. But just before we do, I just want to just speak into last week. Last week's topic got a bit heavy. And um, I was overwhelmed with some emails. I haven't responded to all the emails as yet. But I just want to show you a few responses that I received this week. This one is from a 19-year-old. says, hey, Nims, only you could have found the good news in hell. I love you, man. This one was from a 35-year-old. Saturday, Arvo, right straight off the church. Hey, I hate hell. This message challenges me, and I don't know if I like you anymore. (laughs) My favor is gone. Saturday night, what are those passages you so eloquently put together? Can you hear the sarcasm? Monday night, I'm so glad we get a thousand years to ask God questions. How awesome is that? So this is a person that's been journeying through uh, the word of God. 26-year-old. Hey, names I bloody beep. (laughs) Hate that message on hell, man. I haven't looked into it deeply myself, but I'm beep, beep, scared I'll end up there. Who gives a beep? Anyways, right? I love you, man. (laughs) I was like, oh, wow. But (laughs) new Christian, new Christian, new Christian. Hey, Nim, I read all the texts you put in the newsletter. 2 Peter 3, 9 really stood out for me. This verse told me that God is so loving that he is finding reasons in us to keep us out of hell, not send us to hell. I love the sermon, by the way. It deepened my love for our amazing God. Thank you. Different perspectives, eh? But what I really love is the journey that you guys are having through the Word of God. Because that's my job. If you guys are not in the Word of God and wrestling through the text, then I failed you miserably. Um, I'm up here to just open the door and for you guys to dive into the Word of God. So that's awesome. So let's get stuck into our, our Word today. Let me share the big idea. The big idea I want to speak into is this. God's unlimited power is limited to my prayers. God's unlimited power is limited to my prayers. Doesn't make sense, but I hope I can do my best through the word of God to speak into this big idea. That God has unlimited power, but it's limited to our prayers. Let us pray. Father, it's all about you, so just rid me of myself, fill me with you, so that you can lead me, guide me, and walk before me, and I will follow, in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18, page 842, beginning at verse 1, let's read together. 
One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared for people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while. But finally, he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. But this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant request. You see, this woman, she gets this wonderful principle that we all grow up knowing. And if you've had children, you know that children get this principle. And that principle is that persistence breaks resistance. Somebody say amen. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the son of man returns, how will he find on earth who have faith? A few things we want to draw out from this text. The first thing that we want to draw out from the text is verse 1. Verse 1 gives us the thrust to the story. A parable. A parable is a story that is just made up for illustration. So it's a story that Jesus is sharing. But what's the context? If you look to the left hand side for those that have got the Bible that I have. It's got the coming kingdom of God in that column. So the context is the second coming. Okay. So it's about the second coming. And there's two things that... Stand up with the second coming. We have the certainty that Jesus is going to come again. But there's also the uncertainty of when he's coming. And we have to live in that paradox. The first century Middle Eastern people, they could live in paradoxes. Us in the Western world, we struggle to live in that paradox. We love things black and white. So the intention of this parable is that we should always pray and never give up until Jesus Returns. So that's the intention. The other thing is to look at this judge. He, ne- he neither feared God, nor did he care about people. So this guy is the worst kind of human being there is out there. No respect or no reverence or fear of God, and he doesn't care what people think. So there's no way you can appeal to anything that's noble within him. The next is this lady. Now she's a widow, and she's in the courts, and she's pleading her case. So that tells us some things. The first thing it tells us is that she doesn't have a man in her life. So that's a glaring thing, because only men could go to the courts. Women weren't allowed to go to courts at, in this, at this time. So the fact that she's there means that she doesn't have a husband. For what reasons? We don't know. She doesn't have a brother. We don't know why. She doesn't have a nephew. She doesn't have a cousin or an uncle. We don't know these things. All we know is that she's a woman and she's at the courts and she's pleading her case, which tells us that she's up against great odds and she's in a hopeless situation. And she plays on the only card that she has, and that is the chivalry tradition of the Middle Eastern culture. Kenneth E. Bailey, he's a writer, he's a scholar, a theologian. He dedicated himself almost 40 years to be a preacher of the gospel in the Middle East, right, in Lebanon. And so 
He talks about a time where there was militia 1975 to 1991. And at the height of that, he said that he had to put himself under house arrest. So he couldn't leave his house. He had to stay there day, day and night. But his wife and his daughter, they could come and go as they pleased. Because in the Middle Eastern culture, the chivalry tradition for them is that you don't hurt the women, right? And he also shares another story where the militia had taken a couple of buildings in a, in a suburb and the locals didn't like it. They hated it. But the men would never go to these soldiers and yell and scream because the soldiers would just put one in the head and that's it. No questions asked. There's no ramifications. But the women could so he remembers seeing a woman all, all covered in black at these soldiers, local women, and just yelling abuse at the soldiers. And all he could see was the soldiers smiling, being nice, trying to urge her to just, come on, okay, keep going, keep going, you're annoying me, come on. But they would never put their hands harsh on this woman because of the chivalry culture or tradition in a Middle Eastern culture. So this woman, that's what she's banking on. She's like, I'm not allowed to go in that court, but she marches in that court and she just consistently pounds this judge until she gets justice. In fact, um, that passage there which says, wearing me out, in the original text, in the Greek there, it's a boxing term. The boxing term meaning that the full extent of a blow to my eye. So she was there doing this to the judge, right? Almost like till he's black and blue in the face or he's got a big black eye. That's the term that Jesus is using to explain just how much this woman was persistent. Persistent in nagging this judge until she got what she wanted. So she was hopeless, but she betted on one thing and she got it. The other thing I want you to, to see in this text is most people draw that this unjust judge is God. But if you look at the end of the text, Jesus makes a comparison to say that if this unjust judge gave this woman you know justice well then how much more would god who is loving and just give us or you know justice or vindicate us so it's not a picture that god is unjust it's a picture that how much more would a loving father vindicate his people that choose to have faith in him so this whole idea of this text is to pray and never give up and so the big question for me is, well, why do we pray then? Why do we have to pray? And Luke that we're looking at, he also writes the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke. And Luke writes, but you shall receive power. Everyone say power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This text says that God's power has been deposited in you as a believer. If you're a believer, that God's power has been deposited in you. Everyone say, it's in me. Amen. All right, it's in you. So that's where the power is. But how do we use this power? Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Question. Is God able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? If you were to just take these three words out, it still makes sense, right? If God, is God you know, exceedingly abundantly above all? Like you can just have all and the text still makes sense. Why the Holy Spirit puts these three 
describing words in there, three, um, it's amazing, you know. But if God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, is he able? I'm asking you. Is God able? Well, why is it sometimes in my life he's not doing exceedingly abundantly above all in some of the situations in my life? Are there situations in your life where God is, is, is not exceedingly abundantly above all? Or is God exceedingly abundantly above all in every area in your life? Because I know for me, not every, there's some areas where I'm like, God, I need you to be exceedingly here. At least, at the very least, exceedingly. You don't, want, you don't have to worry about the other two. But there are areas in my life where I look at him like, well, he's not exceedingly abundantly. And I ask why. And the kicker is in the end of this text. God is able, we believe he's able, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power, where's that power being deposited? In us. According to the power that works in us. But that word according is key to the text. It's a Greek term called katar, which means denote measurement. Right? And it also means to measure out or to distribution. So therefore, the God has deposited the power in us, but then we have to measure it out or distribute it. And how do we measure it out? Everyone want to render a guess? Through prayer. So you measure out God's power that's been deposited in us through prayer. You distribute out the power of God through prayer. So, here's some questions that really wrestled, I wrestled with. Well, how much God's power are you measuring out to your family? If you measure it out through prayer. How much of God's power are you measuring out into your marriage? Into your children, into this church, into the school. How much of God's power are you distributing to your current situation you need God to work in? Is it possible that God has already done his part, deposited his power in us, but and now we have to measure it out or distribute it through prayer? Let me take you back to our big idea. God's unlimited power. He has unlimited power. But his power is limited to our prayers. Because it's our prayers that get to measure it out or distribute the power of God that's been deposited in you. Challenging, isn't it? You know, in my household, you've got to fight to have a shower because the hot water runs out really quick. You know? And sometimes I'm the last one home, so I get to miss out. And I'm not very good in the cold shower. I'm terrible and I yelp like a hyena while I'm in there. And the family just laughs and that's, that's okay. Um, but, you know, with the shower, you can turn the tap on for the hot water. And you put your hands out. And it's cold. But what happens? Sooner or later, it gets hot, right? And so, for some of us, we pray like that. We turn the hot water on. It's cold. It's cold. We turn it off. We pray like that, right? So our measuring out, our distribution is very small. It's very short. Some of us, we turn the hot water water on. It's cold. It's cold. And then it's hot. And that's how God wants us to pray, right? Just to be faithful in prayer till the hot comes. Just to be faithful. Trust that the power that is deposited in you is going to take effect. So... 
God says to Elijah, uh, Elijah in the Old Testament, he says, Elijah, I'm going to do this thing. And that thing is future. But the f- really cool thing about Elijah is, Elijah prays seven times for that thing to happen. Now, if God said it, is it going to happen? So why did Elijah have to pray seven times to make it happen? What was he doing? He was distributing the power that had been deposited in him. God said it, but he still prayed to dis- uh, distribute that power that was put inside of him. But I've got a better example. Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Follow along. This is so cool. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning. So he's mourning. And he's been mourning for three full weeks. Okay? Three weeks. So he's mourning. Verse 3. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth. No wonder why he's mourning. Like I mourn when I don't get any meat either. All right? Or when I don't have any pleasant food. But if you look at the text, he's obviously on a diet. So don't diet because you mourn. All right? That's so bad, exegesis. <laughs> I'm just joking, church. For those who are thinking I'm serious, I'm just joking. <laughs> then he says, nor did I anoint myself, saying he didn't take a bath. So everyone around him was mourning, right? <laughs> Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Three weeks. So Daniel mourned for three full weeks. And he didn't anoint himself. Verse 12, check this out. Then he said to me, this is an angel speaking. Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day, everyone say first day, that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words, prayers, were heard. And I have come because of your words. This is the angel. The first day I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. How long did he pray for? Daniel, how long? Three weeks. How many days is that? 21 days. So the king of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is the angel speaking. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. I'm just going to explain Michael for a bit. Now, this term Michael... One of the chief princes, an angel, only appears in scripture five times. There's three references in Daniel, one in Jude, and one in Revelation. Now, when you look at those five references, there are some similarities to Christ, and there are some dissimilarities as well. But, when you look at the whole uh, scholarship... Most commentators and most scholars will agree that this is Jesus because this angel was wrestling for 21 days and then Michael shows up and and he wins the battle for this angel. Okay? What just happened? Check this out. This is how cool God is. Daniel prays for three weeks. He prays for three weeks. The angel tells us, on the first day Daniel prayed, I left heaven with your answer. I left the first day. And then the angel says, but then I got held up for 21 days. Right? I got held up. And how long did Daniel pray for? Three weeks. And then he says, and then the Michael, the chief prince, came. Came and I was able to get through and deliver your answer. You see, Daniel turned that water on and he stood there and the water was cold after one day. 
Then it was cold on the third day. It was cold on the fourth. It was cold on the tenth day. But he kept praying. It was cold on the twelfth. He kept praying. The cold water was still pouring out on the twentieth day. But he kept praying. And then on the twenty-first day, whoo, Michael showed up and hot water came. Isn't God good? Can I ask you this question? What if Daniel stood there and gave up on the twentieth day? What would have happened? What would have happened if he gave up on the twentieth day of praying? You see, there's this spiritual realm, there's this spiritual battle that we don't get to see. Paul outlines it in Ephesians 6. That there's this battle between God and the spiritual realm. In the islands, you get to see it front and center. In Africa, you get to see it front and center. We don't get to see it as much here. But it's true, it's real, it's happening. And so that was taking place in the background. Daniel didn't know. Daniel was just standing there in faith going, when is this hot water going to come? And never came. But he kept praying and he kept praying for full three weeks. And the angel battled for 21 days and he was able to get through because Daniel continued to pray and never gave up. The thing you are praying for, could it be that it has been done in heaven, but you have to move it from heaven to earth? Could it be? One last example. Revelation 5.8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, if you're here for the first time, this could sound a bit scary, but it's, it's okay. It's just he's seeing heavenly things and he's trying to explain it in an earthly way. Okay? So um, just bear with the text. Fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. So we've got these pictures of bowls And they're full of incense, which represents prayer. Which are the prayers of who? The saints. Let's jump to Revelation 8. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense, prayers. That he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. So there's an angel whose job this is depicting that when these bowls are full, he grabs them and he takes them to the throne of God. That's his job. Why? Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. That's God's fire. That's the same fire that fell on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. This is the same fire that fell in Acts 2 in Pentecost. This is the same fire in the book of Exodus that separates God's people from the Egyptians. Same fire. It's added to our prayers. And look what he does with it. He throws it to the earth. Throws it to the earth. The power is in you, but you need to measure it out. You need to distribute it out through prayer. Through prayer. Not theology. Not knowledge. Not church attendance. Not fasting. Not giving. But prayer. And then this question pounded my head from the Holy Spirit. says, Nim, how full are your bowls? Man, this ripped my heart out. 
Because what if we have a bow for everything? We have a bow for family. We have a bow for church. We have a bow for marriage. We have a bow for the environment. We have a bow for our government. You know, we have a bow for just everything. How full are those bowls? And that challenged me. Because I get so busy just doing work and, and studying. And, but can I find time to just fill those bowls? So that the angel of the Lord can take him full to the throne of God and get God's power. Put it in and send him down to heaven so there could be power on earth. How full is our bowl? How often are we coming together as a church to pray together? To pray for God's will for this church. To pray for God's will for this school. To pray for Central Coast, Erina. How full is our bowl? You know, Jesus, he showed us the way. Before daybreak the next morning, he got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Jesus prayed in the night, sometimes all night. Jesus prayed before he ate. When life was unusually busy, Jesus withdrew to be alone to pray Jesus prayed when he was tired Jesus prayed before great temptations Jesus prayed for God's glory he just prayed is it surprising to us that Jesus had power on earth not to me because the power that was deposited in him, he released it by praying. I was bugged out by this number eight. I don't even know why. As soon as I could see number eight in my conscience, and I was like, well, why are you sharing this number eight for God? And I still don't know why he was sharing it. All I could think of was all my Asian mates when I was gambling, back in my gambling days, they loved number eight. Because for Asians, that was lucky, you know, number eight. So I just kept thinking all this gambling stuff. Sitting there quiet, wondering what the number eight meant. And then I get this idea. I don't know if it's from God, but time will tell. You know, I didn't know what God was putting on my heart when he said that this year was going to be the year of impossible. But I claimed it up front. And boy, have we had an impossible year. We have faced being up against incredible odds and we're still standing. So I took number eight to mean eight weeks. Eight weeks that we will come together as a church to pray. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be here every eight weeks, all of them, but just eight weeks starting next week. That's what I took it as. This 845... Is nothing special other than I want it to be the least amount of numbers for you to remember. <laughs> okay? So there's two numbers that's the same. So all you've got to remember is three numbers. So eight, eight, four, five. And here's my encouragement to you and my challenge. For eight weeks starting next week, eight weeks starting next week, at 8.45 on Saturday, we come together 
and we pray. That's it. I don't know what God's going to do with that. I have no idea. But for eight weeks, starting next week at 8.45, whether you can or whether you can't, if you've got kids, I want us to come together at 8.45 for 15 minutes to just pray and fill our bowls so that this church can distribute the power of God so we can further God's kingdom through this place. Eight weeks starting next week. Gracious Father in heaven, Jesus, your amazing son and beautiful, comforting Holy Spirit. Lord, as we embark on our eight-week journey, I pray that you would go before us to inspire our church to just dedicate this time of prayer to you. We ask that you would lead and give us the things that you would want us to pray for. And so, Lord, we're doing this not for our glory, but we're doing this because we want to release the power that you have deposited in us and measure it out to, the, to those that you've entrusted to our influence. May we honor you and may we just live in your grace and compassion as you continue to lead people to this church to further your kingdom. We thank you for Jesus and his model of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.